Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo, and I'm here with James Heathers, who is at Northeastern University. I got that right this time, didn't I? Yes, you did. You are a very clever man who has remembered a piece of information. <laughs> well, we've uh, got a fantastic uh, listener question this week from Jamie McIntosh. He contacted us. Um, it's a good Scottish name, isn't it? It, it is, isn't it? Is he Scottish? I don't know. Maybe um, maybe Jamie can let us know. Uh, but uh, Jamie uh, contacted us about the episode that we did on uh, public health and Pokemon. And he, he was mentioning stories, which I've also come across too, of um, a lot of children um, with autism spectrum disorders who have um, really been able to make a lot of friends and um, interact with people by playing Pokemon, something which they haven't been able to do before. Um, so there's plenty of great stories. There's also lots of uh, not-so-great stories, you know, people, you know, having car accidents and whatnot. Um, but it's great. It's great to hear about these kind of things. So thanks for the um, for contacting us, Jamie. But uh, Jamie also had a question, um, and um, it was really regarding the incentive structure in science. And uh, and how it's a bit uh, it's a bit broken. So we're going to um, dive into that. What what do you think about the whole incentive structure, James? Well, um, I fully expect that in ten to twenty minutes, this whole issue can be resolved because um, it's obviously extremely straightforward. Very straightforward. Um, very people people rarely think about this anymore. <laughs> it's um, it's it's not on anyone's mind. So. Uh, there, there definitely isn't a huge steaming pile of words and audio and video that already exists trying to address this particular issue. Um, so I will hopefully be speaking to that. I think the cat just ran into the wall. Um, <laughs> at least that's what that noise... No, no, he's still alive. Right. Um, this is a... A topic of sufficient complexity that it's difficult to know where to start. Um, the article that Jamie, I can use his name, he's a real person. Um, the article that he sent that's on Medium is in a channel called The Spike, which everyone should read. Because yeah. it's good and interesting. Very interesting. Um, and it started this... It started this discussion on the basis that something really cool happened in neuroscience. And, uh, there's a, a place called the Allen Institute of Brain Science. And they released, rather than writing a paper or writing a book or asking for a grant or any number of the other structural pieces of normal scientific stuff, they took a massive, steaming, screaming pile of recordings that are specifically from the visual cortex. This is already a reasonably well understood bit of cortex, and just took the the, the data, the, the the data pile, and stuck it on the internet and left it there. Um, which is at uh, observatory.brainmap.org. So it is a, a standardized survey of visual cortex physiology in, uh, in mice, in mice. So from the scientific perspective, uh, what they've done, if you are 
uh, if you're if you're working in this area, what they've done is ludicrously valuable. It's very very good. Um, it's also not even it doesn't even remotely resemble something that you can get credit for. It's something that you can't use to stick on a CV and convince a grant committee to give you money or someone to promote you or give you a special job or rub your balls on Sunday. It's just a huge pile of data. And it's exactly the kind of thing that science should really be doing now when we have, I mean, how much data have you collected that never got fully analyzed? Yeah, fair bit. Yeah. I've got a lot. I've got access to even more where I know I'd handle it well, that it would be appropriate for me to work with the data that I haven't got to. So how many analysis uh, analyses have you put in a paper where it's incomplete? There's other stuff to say. A lot. Mm. You make So resources exist continuously that aren't fully utilized. Um and the utility of things that are in front of people are deployed entirely to the end of, can we turn this into a paper and publish it? Uh, which is a reduction of the previous question. Can we turn this into a paper and publish it in the special place where everyone will say we're clever? Oh, I don't, I don't want to ramble to start the show straight off, but the, the point is that the, the difference between the extremely valuable and really quite selfless act of making a huge searchable observatory brain map thing and business as usual uh is is science from two completely different systems and how science is funded and how scientists get to have a career in the first place has a series of incentives built in some things are incentivized other things are not and the argument has been for many years now that doing good science and what's incentivized within science are really heavily diverged. Mm. How was that as an introduction? That was uh, that was good. That was very good. Wait, yeah, you do an eyebrow that says that was slightly too comprehensive and I'm bored out of my tits. <laughs> um, you, you've hit the nail on the head there. And... Uh, the fact that you have these two opposing systems that don't quite sync up, and I think well, I, wouldn't, was... I wouldn't say there's a, an awful lot of private philanthropy doing really good stuff like that. I mean, a lot of a lot of philanthropy is handled in the same way as the uh, ERF or NIH or ARC or any of these other large funding bodies from a place where they, you you make a decision and they get senior people to decide whether or not you get money or not and. So, um, yeah, but there there are very large, useful, collaborative projects where people don't have the same incentives, and a lot of the time they're the really scary, interesting stuff. Um, mm. It's something that they can do because they are not subject to silly pressures. Mm. And I think those pressures being just publishing lots of papers, regardless mm. of how good those papers are, and yeah. where those papers find themselves. and mm, Yeah, still to some degree. That changes a lot by field, obviously. Yeah, that is true. Especially so, 
where would you where would you say that's still um i think there's, there's certain areas of biology where you live and die by science and nature papers still um there's a lot of specialty areas where there's good subspecialty journals where you're supposed to publish a lot but mm. they have less individual potential value in the special scheme of things um more quantitative areas a lot of the time no one gives a toss mm. the thing i continually remind people is that um the 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 work on Ricci flows by Grigory Perelman that won the, the he solved the only Millennium Prize to be solved so the thing that happened at the turn of the millennium it's seven enormously important interesting conjectures in mathematics that weren't very well understood there's seven of them and the only one to be solved was solved by him uh, he's a wonderful interesting maniac of man uh, they gave him the Fields Medal he said pound sound I don't want it keep the money yeah I remember um, yep, yep. do you know how do you know how that work was published Stuck it on archive. Yeah, but that's uh, that's what all the maths types are doing. They just yes. put it up there, and yeah, and then the work is uh, judged judged on its own merits. Yeah, look, that has its own problems that because you have own... to be well known already for people to find. No, there's um now there's a, a kind of uh, the most recent discussion I've seen of that was a. A problem that I think I can agree really is a problem rather than just the, the, the idea, oh, there's a lot of research. Well, there's a lot of research before you could give it away for free. I mean, if you're an expert in something, it usually is relatively easy to tell if something's complete toss mm. very quickly. Sometimes, and that also depends on the area, sometimes it's easy. Um, very Only very occasionally do you have to dig right into something to find out that it's lies. Mm. Um Oh, this is what we get for doing a podcast early. I've just lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, it's just all right. This makes me, I don't, I don't feel like yelling much in the mornings. If you get me in the afternoon and the weather's heating up here. The, and I'm did, didn't yelling, I see a photo that you posted that it was uh, over 30 degrees inside your house? It was 35 in the house at 11 p.m. Now, that is <laughs> mainly the abysmal architecture and design of the building we live in um and I, we're moving in a fortnight because this is a swampy awful box of death what's well, solved then uh yeah I, I feel sorry for i feel like writing a note for the next tenants you know <laughs> um it's it, yeah so before that starts in the day i i'm fine yeah <laughs> when it starts up uh things can get a little ranty <laughs> <laughs> it's like that guy who did the comparison of uh trump trump's tweets and uh there were yeah so some some bloke some some stats <laughs> yeah that, it, it, <laughs> you've just written this off is it because i said the word tweet that you've just <laughs> written it you've said trump and tweet at the same time um no. I can feel hemorrhoids growing on my eyelids. <laughs> well, just quickly, this this guy did an analysis of Trump's tweets and um, and was able to actually um, look at the negativity because if you look at his tweets, the ones that he do that he does are all on Android, and you can see that within the, the tweet metadata. And the ones that his staff does are on iPhone. And the more they're on android and the later on in the day it gets the angrier and the, the more negative the sentiment of each tweet gets huh 
and it's an easy way. Yeah, and very little in common with that man, but getting crankier later in the day. Yeah, Um, yeah. something something common. It makes makes me want to not do it now. (laughs) Ah. Well, yeah, ba- look, you you don't you don't understand what it's like to be here and surrounded by this circus of complete bullshit. It is uh it feels like the death throes of a broken political system. It's like uh it's like watching a, a fish beat itself to death on the, <laughs> the deck of a fishing boat. The fact that the conversations have to happen at all that it is the way it is is just asinine i don't know what to think of a lot of it the fact that it has allegedly to be taken seriously and the fact that there's another three months of it it's like standing in a a, the fire hose coming out of a political sewage pipe right now (laughs) yeah um can we say absolutely nothing else about it yeah well well, yeah i wanted i no. i was before oh christ we have to talk about the incentive problem again yeah if these are the two options we're going straight back to the incentive (laughs) problem i rescind all previous remarks about it being well discussed and or boring well it is for the forty thousand times more interesting than that shit when it comes to the uh when it comes to the incentive problem one thing that has been proposed and Mm. uh one thing that jamie mentioned in his original message was um, that a lot of it can be stemmed via pre-registration. Um, now, mm-hmm. I, I do I do agree with that to, to an extent. It does solve uh, some problems, not necessarily all problems, but I, I think it does actually solve some of the more pressing problems. And um, uh, yeah, we've, we've spoken about this before, about pre-registration. You're, from memory, you're a little bit more sceptical, well, perhaps more specifically for physiology, but... It look. It depends on what you're trying to prevent, and the structure of how pre-registration is okay. supposed to work. Well, let's say it's there to prevent p-hacking first and foremost. Uh, for experiment-based stuff, I find I think the the pre-registration of analysis, the pre-registration of analysis is particularly important. Uh, what you can't stop is a certain sense of overcleaning. You can't really stop people, you know. I mean, it, it depends on how many details you've got to actually pre-register. I mean, I'm say, thinking when, when... of it in, in terms of removing removing bad behavior. As a normal cultural thing, but it, it was a normal thing to do, I'd be pretty happy with it. Um, I would really like five to ten years of all principal investigators anywhere telling people, oh, yeah, this is the normal thing that we do. Mm. This is the normal, the, the, when it becoming standard practice. There's situations where it won't work, there's situations where it will. In general, it's a good idea. Uh, there's a lot of things it can't do. Like? Well, it, it's only it only has limited effectiveness on preventing you from fiddling stuff. Mm, okay, like what? Well, it, it, it depends on how much stuff you. It's, it says the man who is hell bent on making me write a paper about all the different ways that analysis can be fiddled. 
Yeah, but but then like you, what? Like all the stuff you know the stuff. Don't make me explain it. Okay, no, but but, but what if you would actually? That's the whole point, though. Is for you to put down your analysis plan, and then yes, but a, how many details are you going to include? Uh yeah, that that that's a good question. How but, much? How much of the analysis plan? How many of the individual decisions? What about loss rates? Are people going to put in expected loss rates? And then what happens if something really terrible happens? Mm. No, but then you have a just. But th- that's the whole point, though. You justify. Okay, we said this. This thing happened. This is how we responded. When okay. it comes, I'm a hundred percent certain that what you would consider to be, if I got a, a bag of data and pre-registered an analysis, mm. I'm a hundred percent certain I could produce a fulsome description of what I was about to do. And then within the parameters of that description, after you accepted that it was appropriately pre-registered, fiddle the balls off it. Uh, but then you you would see the difference between what you pre-registered and what you published. Now, would you? Well, now th- would there's you? actually, I don't know. Let's find out. But I think the psychological element of like here's here's the expectation you're supposed to say it. The expectation of how this is supposed to happen is the truly important thing. Not the fact that you can get into every single last finicky detail and every piece of control that you have. The control is produced rather than absolutely... Your your, your, abil- your ability to lie to yourself mm. and inappropriately manipulate data is not removed as much as it's reduced. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll, I agree to that. Right. But it's it's much better, and I think have you have you seen that the um the APS journals have introduced this badge system, yeah, where every paper potentially can be given a badge, and I think uh, the badges is are this, is this the, the special Holcomb badges? They could be, they could be actually, and it's working. Um, there's three badges. Is the is the data open? Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I just googled Holcomb badges, and it says. Badges near you in Lake Holcomb, Wisconsin. <laughs> no, I didn't write badgers, B-A-D-G-E-R-S. That would be weird. <laughs> um, it says, yeah, yeah, pre-registered open data, open materials. Yeah, and the thing is, for pre-registration, there's two sort of subversions of that. You can either get a badge which says they did everything they said they were going to do, or there's a badge that says they changed it a bit, but they said... They said that they changed it, and why they changed it is is reasonable. So okay. I think that's good because it's 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 realistic. I um, you you know you know which is my favorite badge, obviously. The uh, the script sharing, data sharing, huh? Data sharing. Yeah, I can't believe you had to guess. Of course, data sharing. Yeah. No. Okay. You yeah. Can't, yeah. You can't. You look if you, a thing's going to turn up, uh, an analysis being inaccurate or wrong or the wrong way around or a little bit squiffy is as much of a problem as any kind of fiddling after the fact sort of business. In Mm. fact, a lot of the time, if you know someone's doing an analysis in a way that's not strictly appropriate, then you will find the fiddling. You'll find that if you're looking at the actual data. And if you can get through the data really, really fast, it's it's also absolute. If that's the whole data from the whole thing, there it is. You know? Mm. And well, I quickly I quickly reran that and it's wrong. 
It depends. I mean, I obviously look. There's other. There's plenty of areas where you can't quickly rerun an analysis. <laughs> but if you can, open data is glorious. As I've said before on many occasions, you also have the possibility of doing further work with the data. Sure. So you don't have to do one of these pathetic what it, meta uh, meta analogies. What's yeah. it called? Don't <laughs> so one of those things. Um, yeah. So you don't have to do that. You can actually go and analyze the data itself, assuming the people who collected it weren't members of the Muppets. Well, one of the one extra thing, a, a great side effect I find with um, data sharing, which is something that I've done now with more recent papers is it actually makes you double check your data i mean sure you should be doing this anyway but the thought of some bloke like you is going to be on the other side of their computer what does that mean <laughs> some guy who's just going to be going oh what's this what's this person done wrong is going to be opening up your data like a tin can going what's this person done that thought makes me triple quadruple check everything and the amount of times I've found by doing that, I've actually found nothing, nothing huge, but some minor errors. You know, the odd rounding thing that's gone off, or you know, I missed. Um, there was one participant who, who sort of for some reason wasn't in this data set. All that kind of, all that kind of stuff, I actually found by double, triple checking the data that I was going to post. So that's a nice little side effect of actually having that, as well as having your scripts. And that's one thing that I, I'm actually quite impressed with is people who put their scripts online. Not only mm. because I can replicate what they did, but also it just helps with my analysis. I'm like, that's a good idea. I'm actually going to use that script. Yeah, I suppose uh, the you you. I do worry about me. It, it, it's a lot of analytical papers I have to review. There's already a problem with people getting calculatory methods they don't understand and deploying them. And when everyone's got access to code that they haven't written, code that they don't understand, or macros that fit into existing programs, or any anything that's like it, they will become normal and be deployed at all sorts of random angles as much as possible. Um, there's a certain sort of vigilance that can prevent that, but, you know. It's also, I, I feel sometimes like, if you have a competitive advantage because you're better at producing the ability to turn data into information than other people, if you give away your materials for use, it's a resource that you've developed essentially for, I mean, you, you, should you be developing it for a community? Yes, but that community is also full of people who will take anything they can get their hands on. With open data, you're using the data for things that the original people never had in mind in the first place a lot of the time. Mm. Things, that they, things that they couldn't actually do. I don't know if materials fit into that. I'm perfectly happy to, to, to give them away. It's just, it's just something that concerns me on an ongoing basis. But I'll tell you what, people write and ask about data. People write and ask about papers. Very rarely does someone write and go, how did you do the specifics of that? I don't know how many times that's happened, but I think it twice, like mm. ever. Oh, no, I just I'll, I'll... like like an American. Um, I'm <laughs> I'm going native. No, you're right because I, I maybe once or twice I've got an email going. How did you How did you do this thing? And uh, I'll just send the script and now cool. Thanks. It's hmm. um, but it's it's I don't know. I, I've just found it's extremely handy when people have posted their resources online, been able to use it. 
And, uh, you know, you, you, at least you get a citation out of it. Or you could just be a bastard and not even cite them. But you should, you know, if you put it well, up... You, can't, you have to if you're using something from a place. Surely it needs to be cited. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <sighs> yeah. Well, look. If there's a solution to the incentive... I know I'm probably not alone in making this particular observation. There's a solution to the incentive problem you're going to make it on a policy level. It has to involve people who are involved with policy. Mm. So what would what would make a better what would make a better funding system? Well, some people have proposed this um more cash, please. More, more Lots money of cash. But have you seen these have you seen these proposals for these for these lottery systems where Yes. So basically, these lottery. I systems... never had the I never had the balls to propose that as a public solution because I didn't know how well that would be received. That's how the Dutch have done their admissions to medical courses, and I always thought it had had a certain sense of inherent fairness to it. Once you get past a certain boundary, yeah. Let's make sure we're talking about the same thing. I don't want to interrupt you, but I just no, we are talking about sure the same we thing. Can... We are. Yeah. Right. Good. Oh, you 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 explain it. I'm over talking. Well, with this uh, with this system, it uh, if you apply for a grant, and uh, during the first round of assessments, if the assessors think that your grant is feasible and fundable, um, then um, you go to the next uh, next part, and from there, it's a lottery system where they will pick X amount of the grants um, that um, that people will people apply to. So rather than being um, assessed on merit or, or some sort of wishy-washy idea of merit of what grant is better than others, it basically says that here we have these grants which are going to produce good science, um, but um, it was decided by lottery. I don't know if... It, is anyone actually doing this? I don't think they are. It's merely an interesting proposal. Uh, I have to t- slightly take issue with your characterization of that. I think that the problem a lot of the time... Uh, it's like the wishy-washy characterizations. The fact that you're you're getting these you know, grants scored on different things by different people, and they're coming to the, the thin end of a, a funding apex thing. Yeah. And someone's getting thirty-three and a half, and someone else is getting thirty-four and a quarter. Yeah, that, 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 that's what I'm getting at. The difference between what the material actually is, the idea that they can be co-compared and scored like that, is totally arbitrary. Yeah. So. They meet a, a criteria of excellence, and the, at the point where they meet the criteria of excellence, they all go in the big sack, and they're shaken together and popped out the other side. Um, yeah, that's a it's a really interesting idea. Naturally, I first thing I tried to think of was a way to poke a hole in it, and... I wonder what happens to rounds of improvement. So here's an interesting thing. So say we have a hypothetical grant scoring thing that goes from 1 to 50. Yep. And we throw out everything below 30. And we fund everything that's 40 and above. So if you get something and it doesn't get to go into the big sack and it's a 38, you might get feedback as to what to specifically improve and then come back to it with a better idea. Now, if it gets something that's 41, and it gets into the big sack, and it doesn't get funded, it's already allegedly good enough. What happens to any future revisions or changes or 
does it stay in the big sack or does it need to be resubmitted and reassessed on the basis of what else is available? Well, one you thing... see what I mean? Yeah. So it... if you have something that persists, if they started a system like this and the things that went into the big sack persisted in any way, yeah? Yeah. Then you are hugely incentivized to write as many as possible as soon as possible to get so them into the sack. Because I mean, at that point in time, it becomes purely a fact that you will need to wait for a certain amount of time. Because once they're in the pool, if they're not getting out, yeah. See what I mean? Here's one way that the ERC has um, gotten around that in, in a different respect. That is uh, for e- for most, if not all, ERC grants. If uh, if you fall between a certain uh, quality marker, you can't actually apply and t- for for the next round. You have to wait for two years. So that stops people from going. Oh, I'll just put a grant in without even thinking about it. Only okay. if only if you have um, if your grant didn't get up, but it was still above this arbitrary score of forty or whatever, then you are free to apply the next year. But if you drop beneath a certain standard... But then it has to be reassessed? Uh, yeah. It's but not then it, reducing the amount of assessment, is it? Uh, no. So, But the thing is, you've got, you've got an advantage because you've obviously got feedback from the first assessment. All right. So everything does have to be reassessed. Yeah. Right. So it doesn't completely solve the problem, but it solves the problem of people going, cool, I'm just going to get as many things in the, in the bag as possible. I, I think there should be a halfway compromise here. I reckon any any grant that actually gets, you know, 48 or above should be funded. And then things between 40 and 47 go on the sack. Because what if you actually have an incredible idea that should be funded? Yeah, there's amazing... Then, then you have to rely on the people reviewing it to determine the fact that it's incredible. That uh, never goes away. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the system is really suited to, towards early career early career researchers because they yeah um I, we once again we we do need to film some video of uh, James making making faces <laughs> just, not making faces to stop That's just me how I look just to stop me from you, losing my, my my train of thought um but yeah some some sort of way of um you know meeting halfway. But I like the general idea, and it is much better for early career researchers who don't necessarily. So many, so many of these grants are assessed on what they may do in the future. Yeah, do you have a good idea? Whereas more senior types, more mid career types, is assessed on what you're going to do and what you've done in the past. Hmm. But even that might not be a great marker. You might, you, you might have done some really cool stuff, but then maybe you've just proposing some really stupid research. I don't know. All right. Here's a here's a, a a question that fits into how everything works. Are there too many PhD students? Oh, yes. We, this this I was actually going to bring up. There right. is too many. That, well, that... Uh, it depends. It depends on the system. Um, but in in general, the ability to get fund, deploy, etc., PhD students, is that a consequence or a response to the funding environment because if it is changing the number of phd students in the absence of changing the environment that resulted in the phd students 
See what I mean? Yeah. In other words, if you need 20 for your laboratory to run, it's a large laboratory, then if there's some edict that says, all right, you get six, well, no, you can't, you can't do your poorly funded work stuff. Um, the, the worst thing I can think of in this is here in the US. And it's the idea of people going into debt to get a PhD. Oof. Can, can you explain that system for people like me who aren't really familiar? Um, some like, places, some places, graduate programs cost money and you enroll in them, uh, by taking a loan out with a lender. Like a bank or something. Pay. Um, I think, yeah, I think the, the, the individual, ah, oh, this is from memory. Oh, I have no, I have no contact with this is a, a place where I'm going to work. Uh, makes a point out of procuring funding for the PhD students to work. They're funded PhDs. Um, I can't imagine why you'd not want to do that because nothing is more distracting than worrying about how you will turn your degree in one specific thing that doesn't appear to be valued by the rest of the world into cash to repay the enormous amount of money you borrowed. Yeah. Um, so it's an extremely foreign concept to a lot of people, but there are places where it depends on the degree, of course, and the, it depends on the degree. Uh, you are making a terrible financial decision. I think you're making a terrible financial decision if you're doing that because you're looking at it as an investment unless you're doing something where there's actually a payback. I mean, like, so I, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't want to tell people not to be excited about what they do. I don't want to tell people don't, don't, don't do that. Don't pay any attention to that. That's a forget, forget all this science business and, and go and do something else. Well, look, a lot of the time people want to do this because they're compelled to, mm. because it's really interesting. I don't want to tell people not to be happy. I'll get cynical now. Don't worry about that. <laughs> it's the fact that it just might be a thing that you can never get out from under. Yeah, you may find have to find another outlet for feeling the way you want to feel when you show when you show up to work. That is uh that is a hard it's a, is a hard issue to resolve. And obviously, look when it comes to that, you're obviously talking about it. Uh, the, the whole PhD thing is born out of a, a huge lack of structural funding. Um, the problem is is that it's kind of like it's burning money to stay warm. If you're like, oh well, it's a terrible idea. This is a this is a terrible vocational decision because there's all these people and they only get into this situation, etc., 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 etc. Um, and yeah, it's hugely dependent on the different uh, different systems. For instance, this is a, an interesting. Uh, this is a less of a problem in Sweden. Sweden is a good example because it's actually pretty hard to become a PhD student in Sweden. That's where uh, one of the barriers. Um, and in Australia, it's as um, you know, if you get a reasonable honors degree and you don't throw up during any of the initial meetings with the faculty um, or use any racial or ethnic slurs, set anything on fire, etc. I don't think it's that difficult to become a PhD student. It's certainly not if, if you say you're going to pay for it yourself. Yeah. So you're just like, oh, we, will, we should reduce the amount of people doing this. Yeah, but 
what's that going to do? Well, that's no, that's the thing. All of these, all of these, these problems feed into all these other problems. It's a, it's a network of something that's been slowly becoming more and more dysfunctional over time. Mm. It's a network of problems. Um, I'm just starting to look at how grant stuff needs to be funded now. What I need to apply for and ask for, mm. and things that I think are important versus things that think I can justify on a piece of paper and have other people agree that they're a good idea are not the same thing yeah like it's crazy to think that um so much of my work is almost focused on okay what grant do I want to apply for in two years what are they looking for how do I do that that's just nuts feels like you're continually tracing your tail the entire yeah. time yeah you know if you're always following things, you're having these de decisions dictated by whether or not the, the it's like you can only exist under the following circumstances, you know? Hmm. If you can only exist under the following circumstances, then um, you're not making decisions based on what you're finding out. Yeah, <laughs> it's you've you've outsourced you've outsourced the ability to exist to something else it's a contingent on other factors that aren't the interest or the quality or potential payoff of what you're doing and it almost seems like that if the incentive structures change people will figure out a way to game it oh yeah of course and then we'll be back at square one again so oh, look everything like this is a problem you're talking about very clever competitive people you know who are who are in a system now where there are rabid elements to it Anything that you turn over, you know, any changes that you make, people will immediately apply their minds to. How do, how do I m turn this to my own personal benefit? Absolutely. It's just, that is, I mean, but let's not pretend that that makes it unique in this <laughs> particular no, you're right. scenario. What do you think happens if you pass a huge trade a free trade bill between two different countries. What do you think lawyers start doing in multinational companies? Loving it. Going through it and looking for incentives on a structural level. What are yeah. the structural incentives we can take advantage of for doing this? this the, the, the thing that, the, you know, the, 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 the Dutch or Irish sandwich and stuff like that. How do we avoid paying any income tax at all through the, the, the shuffling round of our assets, company registration, etc., etc.? Systems are systems are immediately analyzed for weaknesses. Mm. And, and that invariably uh, is the case because people are looking for benefit to themselves or the people in this situation. So let's not pretend that's got some kind of like the, the academia in general, rather than just specifically science. Is is the only thing that's full of people who are going to scrabble that hard. It can be really undignified because the amount of money is so small. But you know, if you were managing a four billion dollar company and then you didn't have to pay three hundred million dollars worth of tax, people would go. Well, that's an important structural decision you made to keep all that money. But the, the hoops that people jump what are we, through what are we for a few hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. It's very, uh, it's very crab bucket sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. Well, let's uh, take a short break and then... Let's we'll... take a short break. And we'll be back. Realize we've made horrible life decisions. 
Welcome back to Everything Hurts. I am a tube of toothpaste, and my teeth are made of razors. With me is my co-host, a halogen lamp. Halogen lamp, how are you? I'm I'm glowing. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's taken such a long time for you to finally go with something. Like <laughs> Good job, Daniel. I uh, um, yes. Let's do let's do let's do questions and uh, relatively relatively quickly as well, so we don't bore the ass off the entire world. Yes, um, we've been talking about incentives in science, and uh, we had a question from a listener who asked us. Um, Let's. What do we think? Uh, some things that uh, what if we could make a practical change in how science is performed? What would it be? James Heather's one thing in, to change in, science in how in how it's performed. Yeah, sort of the, more, the, the actual factual physical practice. No, no, more structural. I think that I think that's what the question was getting at. I wish there was a formal. I wish there was a formal mechanism for, like, a, a, a mandated, official, actual. Actually, look, that, that feels unfair. Now I've said actual. There's plenty of people doing, I'll put it this way, there's plenty of people doing science communication, trying to bring it to a, a, a broader audience. I wish mm. it was mandated somehow. I wish you had to explain things somehow. I wish there, I wish it was in like you had to go to schools and explain it to people. So I don't think we're, we're continually going. Well, can we have more cash, please? <laughs> I think people will collectively value it if they are in a culture where they are brought up thinking that it's it's valuable and that it's a central part of what happens. I wish there were university educators in schools more. I wish there was more money to produce stories and or documentaries and or radio programs and or other forms of media where it drew people into the life and narratives of science, the thing. Mm. Because the alternative is having people like these right-wing divs here who get a list of grants and then go, ha, ha, ha. $300,000 to investigate ancient Egyptological sexual practices. <laughs> well, that's just left-wing people being crazy assholes. <laughs> I had this in Australia as well a couple of times. And that is... I, I've met people who seriously think scientists piss away money like draft beer. And they just get the things and they just... oh. We'll spend it all on rats, we'll put them in a big maze and we'll poke them with a spoon and we'll send the rest of the money on Dominican cigars. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> There are people who think that. There are people who think worse things than that. I wish that if you're going to, you can't just go, oi, Congress, oi, Parliament, oi, whoever, give us more cash. If it's going to be the plank of a party political platform somewhere, but people can, people will think about it broadly. Mm. People need to know about it. I'm not saying inculcate them into the ways of science, that they must be led by the neck, these filthy peasants. No. What I'm saying is it needs to be normal. And the way yeah. that you make it normal is you have a much larger and better funded conversation about it that people grow up being familiar with. Totally agree. That's my change. 
I like it. And I think you can also uh, incentivize that. And people are already granting aid because he's already doing that with some uh, giving points to how you communicate science to the public. So it's sort of happening. Um, but I think it's 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 in, it's in scientists' own interest, though, in order in order to do that. And some are brilliant who are really good at getting in front of the media. And when it comes to you know politician thinking about where they're going to splash some funding, they're more likely to give it to the person who's um who's around the media than than the person who's who's locked up in their office. So I think it's um I think it's a fantastic idea. Well, look at that. You think something that I've said is a fantastic idea. Yeah, I think it's excellent. Um, uh, and... Will wonders never cease. What's your answer then, Captain Excellent? Okay, um, here is an idea of how we can redo the PhD. Yeah. So at the moment, uh, we have yeah, most institutions, you, know, you publish three, three papers and um, there, there's, there's your PhD or something thereabouts, particularly within the biomedical sciences. But I think we should change this up a bit. And instead of doing, say, three papers and you're done, you should do two original empirical papers and one replication. You start off, the first thing, the first thing that you do is your replication study. Now, by doing this, not only are you replicating, um, but you're also teaching people how to do science. Instead of doing some new original investigation they may not know about, here you are, they're following the instructions of what someone else did. Um, and then what's happening is that um, the, the problem with replication is that no one wants to do it. No mid-career researcher, no postdoc wants to go, I want to do it. And that, that comes back down to you know, the incentives there. But if it becomes part of a PhD program and you're doing it more as a uh, as a teaching experience almost then phds mm. are more likely to do it it's a win-win the um the, do the, the, you get instruction from the people whose work you are replicating you'd hope that so could be good yeah you could even collaborate or you'd hope so um and then um well, you have a central database where people go i oh, i immediately like you put that in the paper I've immediately stuck this result on website malone where i hope someone can come along and replicate it yeah, and PhD students all over the world pick it up and go. That is within. That is to my interests. That speaks to me on a personal level. Um, I'll do all the work. Just point me in the right direction. Poke me with a stick. Obviously, the supervisor is going to do most of the heavy lifting. Hopefully, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on a face-to-face basis. But here is a here is a question that I'd like to engage with. Yeah, I think. I think that if you did that, there's a lot of situations where people would learn faster. That's why that's it's, why yeah. it's a good solution. Why? Because it, it would in, it would involve the, the 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 structure of everything that you have to set up mentally, the the interface you need to use. It would involve those decisions being made by someone, hopefully. Who knows what they're doing? Mm. Or at least has more experience in what they're doing than you by definition. Mm. Hooray. That's so, an interesting idea. I've never seen that. I mean, I don't keep up with all the stuff that people are saying about replication because they say so much. <laughs> so, no, come on, they do. It's on and on, on and on it goes. On and on these conversations go. 
but they like they're continually they're continually covering gold. I don't know if the the solutions are things that can happen immediately or if the things that will take many many years. But but here's one. I, I was thinking about this, and one criticism of that approach. Imagine if someone imagine you, you did some shit odd experiment. You know, people are going, oh, this is great. And then you hear that some PhD student is going to try replicating it. Would you rather hear that a PhD student's doing it or a fully-fledged lab or a more senior type is going to be doing it? So it's a question of quality. And obviously the PI or the um, the supervisor should be hand-holding the, the first PhD's investigation. But maybe the quality of these replications won't be as strong if this is something which is led by PhD, an army of PhD students rather than an army of more senior investigators. Mm, yeah, it's possible. Right? It depends how much guidance they get. I mean, an enormous amount of experiments were done by PhDs in the first place. Let's not pretend that you, you can put the first experiment on some kind of pedestal. <laughs> no, because, you're so right. You know, who do you think is doing all the fucking work? Yeah, but the thing is... but It's not the senior professor whose name is on the end of the paper... And but they have, the they have more you're going to talk to the corresponding author. Can I have the access to this thing? Do you know what they do a lot of the time? They palm you to the postdoc who was in charge of the PhD who did all the work. Mm. I was like, yeah, absolutely, you're welcome to. You would have no more experience and insight than the people who originally did the research. They had better access to someone who knew what they were doing. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know how much of a I don't know how much of a problem that would be. Uh, a good way to answer a question like like this is you ask a person who's already been through the process and say, do you wish, I mean, it seems like a good idea, you know, everyone's very well aware of all the issues around replication now, but your own personal reflection, does this, is this something that you wish had happened to you? And I say, yeah. That would have saved me months of arsing around by myself. And it's a good way of just getting I started. Have, I would have I would have met someone who was obligated to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what I said. Um, <laughs> it it would have been it it would have been valuable for a lot of reasons. Mm. Let's uh let, let's implement it. Sold. Well, yeah, there you go. Like all of these problems, you click your fingers. Oh, well, that's that out of the way. But what are we having for afters? And one small, one one other small problem is that the um getting getting postdocs is highly competitive, as as we both know. Um, and a lot of that is predicated on getting papers. Um, mm-hmm. so if you if say you know twenty percent of institutions implement this idea, and the other eighty percent you have PhDs who are working towards you know four or five original investigations, but then you have other PhDs from these 20 per- 20% of the universities who have only only you know two or three original ones and this replication perhaps considering the system that we're in now you know yeah. there's going to be un- unfair advantage but i mean I maybe, don't maybe necessarily i necessarily agree yeah. that's a problem either i mean the the quality of the work is inf- if you have one really good paper it's, it's especially in the biological sciences if your phd results in one really good paper or one particularly solid paper i mean that's the all you're going to have time for you're thinking about a very small subset of people who are coming out of PhDs in the first place. Mm. Yeah. Or that, people in the humanities PhDs in general don't get any papers. Philosophy journals, I found this out a while back. Uh, philosophy journals have a, a, a bounce rate that's about the same as nature. 
Really? <laughs> yeah. Far out. Unbelievably critical. I mean, for this shit that no one's ever going to read. No, no offense, but um, I can't read. I can read science that I don't understand. You get to a certain point when you know what the procedures are, and you can surmise things as you go through. Philosophy is lexically shut, like a fucking master lock. And you're like, oh, I'll, I'll read what happened. It's not a journal-based system of turning these things over, so I don't think they feel any need to externalize the stuff that's happening in these journals. Yeah? And it's got a very low acceptance rate. So how many graduate students do you think are knocking out papers? Goose egg. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah? So, you, yeah, look, if it's a matter of this person has a lot of individual investigations, this person doesn't. Man, there's so many different flavors of that. Some people will do it. You're just saying that because we did it. Yeah? Mm. We're also weird. You spent a lot of time as an RA doing essentially independent stuff before you started doing PhD work. Yeah. I spent a lot of time as a master's student, and also I'm weird. I spent a very, very long time trying to understand things that had nothing to do with my PhD because I thought they'd help. Now, it turns out that they did, but if I'd been wrong, it would have been a disaster. <laughs> so I can't even recommend that as a, you know, as a way of approaching the problem. Mm. But, yeah, it's not a matter. I don't think it's a, it's a practical problem. Would you get leapfrogged while you're replicating other people's stuff? What if you replicate it and it doesn't work and it's a great consequence? No, you're, you're what right. What if you replicate it and it works really well? And then you're very certain that you have achieved something that is basically repeatable. Yeah. So it's, it's it, yeah. There goes that uh, argument. I don't try to poke holes in everything you think, but it sort of does come naturally. So you're wrong and you smell bad. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now we can. Now he was laughing. That just, I really want a video like that. If you're going to just hear the audio of that, it sounds like me being horrible. But I was watching you laughing the whole time. There. I was staring at you. Um, yeah. It needs to. It needs some kind of running emoji thing so people know I'm not being a dick to you. Um, <laughs> all right. Do we have any? Um, do we have any contact stuff to to finish up? I, I think that's it. Shout Just outs, to, curse yeah, outs. Quick, quick shout out to um, this week to Rude Hortensius who regularly um, plugs our show. You so, are. Yeah. So th- thanks for that, and thanks for everyone that does um, on Twitter, on uh, on Facebook, and what for the was quest- that name? What, what was that name? Yes. Rude Hortensius. That is the best fucking name I've ever heard in my life. Who the hell is that? Yeah, so I am... Um, is that a, like a Dutch name? Let's let's see where... Uh, South Africa. Uh, but also... Well, hang on. I, I, postdoc in South Africa and the Netherlands. So one of the, one of the two. So it is possibly Dutch. That is a legit name. Yeah. I feel very plain when I hear names. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, look, good. Um <laughs> yeah. thanks, Chief, whoever you are. But uh, keep keep the questions coming in on um uh on Twitter at Hertz Podcast. You can also find us on Facebook. Actually Just... that's not the best name I've ever heard. The best name I've ever heard um is is either the, the that guy from the Olympics, Tokyo Sex Whale. Uh, you're gonna have to find a screenshot and post that. No, it's a real, it's a real thing. I believe it's you. It's a but, real but, thing. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with names of the year? No. 
Oh, you you've got to be you've got to be kidding. Names of the year. Names of the year, man. It's Amanda Miranda Panda. <laughs> no, Sweet Orifice. <laughs> These are the, like people. People collect the best names from all over the world, and you, it's an open vote onto who wins. Sweet Orifice was in the final of like, 2016. Like the, earlier is it like in the a play year. a playoff system, and people vote for yes. Yes, okay. it's been going on for years, man. Years. Um, sweet, sweet orifice was up against. I love this Pope McCorkle the <laughs> Third. That's a... a name. Yeah. That, I mean, there's there's a few people who are unfortunate, like um uh, like Tillian Tillian Buttsack, literally but, but, Buttersack. But. Butzak. It was something like that. Um, the best one. Everyone agrees that I mean, they, they didn't didn't win. But it's um it's in the quarters of the semis or something. There was a dude called Taco Pope. Taco Pope. I'm sorry, you were doing the outro. Um, yes. That that that's fine though. If anyone has any um, gee, one thing that I do love is um the funny scientist names that just fit so well with their topic of research. Yes, those those are gold. I know, so, I know, uh, I know. You're a big fan. That that's your wheelhouse, James. Finding those huge, ones, huge. Yes, no yeah. one's ever been able to to beat the woman who. Uh, it was a a German researcher from a very long time ago. I don't even know how I found it. I think I happened upon it by accident. It's a research into erectile dysfunction due to circumstances, uh, and the surname was Drunken Mole. Drunken Mole. <laughs> Which only really makes sense in Australian, but it does make sense in context. <laughs> they're, they're they're out there, they're everywhere. The uh the names that just uh that just fit so well. Yeah. Oh, I've got the website here. Furious Carney. Uh Broderius Ham. Oh god, it's so perfect. Ransom Barefoot. Doctor Shark Bird. <laughs> Doctor Shark Bird. Billy Joe Skeleton. <laughs> Mighty Fine. Oh, Lord. Joy Lord Gumby. <laughs> Lieutenant Charlene Sprinklehuff. These are the... No, no drug-induced Monty Python haze has ever come up with names like this. <laughs> Trey McKitty. <laughs> Divine Diablo Munatuna. Mighty fine Bevis Mugabe. Oh, damn. Oh, Mugabe, that's These make not... me so happy. But if anyone's got any good scientist ones, um, there's a, a researcher who's working on something to do with alcohol abuse called red wine. I always like that one. Um, the best academic name ever, there's no question about this, is Larry Lee Bumpass. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say. <laughs> yep. For that one. But yeah, send, oh. send us um, send us any um, any really super appropriate or inappropriate science author names that fit well with their um, topic of research. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so Facebook, Twitter, hit us up, rate us on iTunes. Um, we're, we're getting more and more each week, and we really appreciate that. But we will be back next week with uh, another episode of Everything Hurts. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna leave you with one final name. Are you ready? I'm ready. Jasmine Albuquerque Croissant. Croissant. Perfect. <laughs> Bye for now. Bye-bye.